Bob D. from Nevada. Thank you. My name is Bob. I am alcoholic. I'm sober only through the grace of a God that I was afraid to believe in, that I've accessed and maintained in my life through the 12-step process in the big book, an ability to remain reasonably sponsorable, and a persistent and consistent effort in the primary purpose of helping other drunks, and consequently, I haven't had a drink or any mind or emotion altering substance since October 31st, 1978. And for that, I owe I come from a school of thought in Alcoholics Anonymous that we owe everything to Alcoholics Anonymous and we can't pay it back so we pay it forward. And we do service and we do all that stuff here. I'm delighted to be here. I, uh, there's a lot of old friends here. Um, some new ones I imagine that I'll make over the weekend. I want to thank the committee for the privilege of coming here. I was here uh, several years ago. Uh, bought a car at this conference. I promised myself praying on the plane, don't buy a car, don't buy a car. Up here. Um, I want to thank Susanna for the enthusiastic story and introduction. I, um, I got a funny mind as she was talking. She said she also used drugs. And my head went off on this tangent. It's like, what would she be like on speed? <laughs> I, 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 tried, I tried to imagine it. All I could visualize was a blur. I want to welcome the people that are new. I'm glad you're here. I have a disease called alcoholism. I didn't want it and didn't know I had it and suffered from it for many, many years and was baffled by it and thought it was everything else. I thought it was mental problems. I thought it was emotional problems. I thought it was a lack of moral fiber. Um, at one point, um, I thought I was convinced it was a brain tumor. Um, I was another point, I, th I read in a novel about this guy in the story he developed uh, he had syphilis and he had the advanced stages and where it goes to your brain and then you do things you can't remember them and you know I thought oh my god I got syphilis <laughs> this is funny. I, but I don't want to have I'll, I'll have everything else but it's alcohol you know there's one disease a hypochondriac doesn't ever think he has and that's alcoholism <laughs> I imagine everything else I never occurs to me that it's alcoholism never uh and yet I've had alcoholism for as far back as I can remember. I, I, I suspect um, that I, I must have had it before I picked up a drink. And the reason I suspect that is it was instantaneous from the moment I picked up my first drink. I never drank socially and crossed over. I, I, I drank from the, the very, from the time I was almost 13 years old. And I, with a bunch of older guys, I drank alcohol for the first time. And when the effect of it hits me, I had this overwhelming feeling of, oh my God, we've got to have some more of this. And I've always had that. I didn't know that 
that that was the definitive characteristic of people with my disease. This allergic reaction to alcohol that manifests itself in this craving that when I start to, when I drink alcohol, as the effect hits me, I break out in this irresistible yearning for more of that effect, more of that feeling. I've always had that. I've never not had it. I've never once been with my buddies and in some guy's house drinking or in a bar shooting pool and doing pitchers and shots and drinking for an hour and had somebody say, hey, Bob, would you like another one? I have never known the experience of sitting there and thinking, no, this is good, thanks. I'm good. It's always one more, one more. It's always, and if you, if you can't get enough and you're like me, you're always going to go too far. And I always go, I can't shut her down at reasonable points. And there's reason, I, I used to drink with some guys that, I don't think they were alcoholics, even though they did get in trouble occasionally. They were problem drinkers. And they had an ability, when the heat was on, to shut her down at a certain point. But there's something, this, this phenomenon of craving that I have uses my own mind against me. And as, as the effect of the alcohol from every drink hits me, even though I told myself, this is the fourth drink, and I told myself I would leave it for about halfway through the fourth drink, I, it becomes so apparent that four's not the right number. <laughs> no, I mean, and, 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 I think, see, and I think that's my idea. I think it's my idea. I have no idea that this disease is punking me out and it's using my own mind against me and all my abilities to justify and rationalize to make me think that the, the next one now is my idea. I have no idea. I have no clue what's driving me. And I've always had that. I've always had that allergic reaction to alcohol. And, and I grew up in a, an era, I'm an alcoholic, but I grew up in an era when... Uh, you know, we had you know we had that sex, drugs, and rock and roll phase of you know is when I was growing up, and we did a, a lot of other stuff. Um, but I have alcohol. <laughs> Did an angel get its wings? Yeah. <laughs> but but I got alcoholism, and uh, I I've always had it, and I I didn't know it. My uh, I started hitting, uh, talk a little about the early stages of my drinking. I guess I should do that a little bit. You know, alcohol, uh, there's a time in most of us, uh, in the early days of our drinking, when the effect from alcohol is so spectacular, it's like this hook is set. And it does something for me that is so miraculous that I will chase that for years into the years where it stops doing that for me and starts doing stuff to me. But I think if alcohol never did that for you, you're not going to, you're never going to hang to let it do to you later what it's going to do to you if it hadn't at one time did that for you. And what did it do for me? Well, I could put it a lot of different ways, but I'll tell you what I really believe. It relieved me of the bondage of self. I was a guy who was narcissistically self-involved. I worried a lot. I lived disconnected from life. I, I have feelings as far back as I can remember in grade school even, uh, feelings of it's all of you and then there's me. Uh, an inability 
somehow that I don't understand to connect with people the way I observe them so easily connecting with each other. I have to become the pretend guy. I become the guy who pretends he's not afraid. I become the guy who pretends he fits. I become the guy who pretends he's okay and I'm none of it. And uh, when I drank alcohol, all this, this thing that was on me just seemed to fall off of me. And I could come out and play. I could get free. I loved it. There was a time in my early drinking when alcohol, I believe, was the most immediate and the most effective treatment for this disease I've ever found. It was spectacular. I mean, you could take a guy like me who's a, who's a mopey, depressive, lonely, can't fit with anybody kind of guy and give me three or four drinks and all of a sudden I'm just spouting deep philosophy. And I, mean, I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm, I remember one night drinking wine, smoking reefers with my buddies and I remember talking about these amazing things. I remember just saying to this buddy of mine, I said, this is what Buddha saw. You know, you kind of see the little thing. And I could, I could get lit up and I could play music and I could, better than I could ever play music, I could, I could sing and do stuff in front of people. I can't do that sober. I could talk to girls. I can't talk to girls sober. I'm too locked up. I, I don't want to be crude, but I swear to God, if it wasn't for alcohol, I'd probably be celibate to this day. I, I don't think I could have ever even asked a girl out for a date. I mean, I was just too locked up in me. And you get me about a pint of rum in me, I start channeling people. I mean, I just... You know what I mean? It's just very cool. It's very, I remember... It, and I remember a junior, I was probably ninth, seventh, eighth, I don't know, junior high school. There was this girl I had this crush on, and I went to this dance to, because I'm, I've got to psych myself. I'm going to ask her to dance, you know. And, you know, I'm, I already know what college our kids are going to go to, you know, that kind of, right. I, I build fantasies and sandcastles in the air, you know. I'm just that kind of guy looking for somebody to move the furniture in. And, and, and I go to this dance, and I can't ask her to dance. And I've, I've been psyched up for a week to do this. And I can't. It's like I'm locked. And every song I battle with myself. Oh, next song. And I finally gave up. I, just, I felt like such a pathetic loser. I can't even ask this girl to dance. Went out in the parking lot, ran into some buddies of mine. Had some 151 rum and coke. Oh. I need 151 rum drinkers here. Yeah. And just in case, if you're new and you're still a little bit delusional, let me tell you something. There is no social drinking of 151 rum. There's no social drinking of Everclear either. I mean, you drink that for one reason, one reason only. Get downtown now. I mean, that's it. So I drink some, some 151 rum and Coke with my buddies, and I come floating back into that dance all under the power of 151 rum. I remember walking, just walked right up to her with a confidence that's beyond me and a suave fare and I just start talking to her. Words are coming out of my mouth. I had this out-of-body experience as I'm listening to the things I'm saying to her and I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, this is going to work. It was like amazing. 
And then what happens? Well, you know, I sober up and I'm back to being me again. You know, me. The guy, I never liked that much, you know. I'm just, I'm back to being me. I don't like that. And I, alcohol, I think alcohol ruins us because it takes us to a place that for the rest of my life I will compare everything in my life to that. I, I think that's, you know, uh, Silkworth says something in, uh, in the doctor's opinion I think is very interesting. He says that, uh, that when guys like me get sober, we become restless, irritable, and discontented unless we can again experience that sense of ease and comfort we'd once found in taking a few drinks. Now, I, I'm not stupid. I've been in four or five rehabs, so I draw the line. I am not drinking. I swear I'm not touching any of that stuff. But I become an ease and comfort seeker because I got something wrong with me. And I'm trying to reproduce the effect from alcohol. I don't know that I'm doing that, but I'm looking, I'm targeting stuff that's going to make me better. Get that job in that steel mill. You know, that job that, that pays that, have a, own a house, buy a boat, have a Harley kind of money. Get that job, man. The job I know, I know with that job. Oh my God, I'll be there. I don't even have that job three weeks. There's stupid people working there. They're just taking advantage of me. What is that? You know, you you get you meet that you meet that girl. Oh my God! You just know you're gonna you, she's gonna complete me. And I get with her. She's amazing. Three weeks later, God, was I wrong about her? And I don't know why the shine always wears off this stuff. I don't understand that unconsciously, on an emotional level, I'm comparing what it feels like to have that job to what it felt like to have five shots of tequila. I don't know I'm doing that. I just know that after a while, I just feel disillusioned and let down by whatever it is I brought into my life. I compare what it's like to be in this relationship with this wonderful gal to what it felt like to drink a pint of 151 rum, smoke a little reefer. Now I'm, aggra- now I'm aggravated at her. I can't tell you why. I can't tell you why she's annoying me. But she's annoying me. And unconsciously it's because I'm, I'm desperately seeking some sort of ease and comfort. And if you're like, if you're like me and you, don't, and you know you can't drink, what you'll do is you'll spend your abstinence desperately seeking relief. Now, I don't want to change, but I want relief. And so it's, it's just it's a pathetic, delusional abstinence where I just target things and I go, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh no. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, wrong again. You know, it's just like... And Chuck Chamberlain one time said, he was talking about abstinence, and he said that if you have this thing that I got, he said you'll eventually get to a place where you can't put anything between you and you. And there you are. And there you are. And there you are. And that ain't no good. Because it never was, was it? And so I drink. I drink when I've exhausted all avenues of ease and comfort. And it's, it's funny, I, I get this kind of mind that never lets me 
see it. You know, it talks about that in that book. It says there comes a time when I can't bring into my consciousness with sufficient force the memory of that suffering, the memory of the promises, the memory of the humiliation, the memory of the remorse, the memory of the pain, the remember of, the memory of, oh, with tears in my eyes, sobbing, I'm never going to do this again. I can't remember. It fades. It gets hazy after a while and vague. And at the same time, my head starts working on me. It starts selling me a bill of goods. It starts... It starts seducing me into a, an erroneous idea. Look, Silkworth says we can't after a time differentiate the true from the false. The last couple of years of my drinking were, were pathetic. It's not a party anymore. I'm not the guy that's jamming. I'm not the guy that's shooting pool with my buddies or talking to the girls or having fun or laughing. I'm the guy who drinks and, and, is, and I feel sorry for myself. I drink and I sob sometimes uncontrollably. I drink and at 4 o'clock in the morning if I'm sleeping on your couch when everybody's asleep I'll get on your phone I'll call up people I went to grade school with. I'll call ex-girlfriends and cry into the phone we should have got married. Oh, I, call, I called my poor mother and father up who were nice people and all they ever did was try to help me and love me. I called them one time about 4 a.m. and Start crying into the phone. You must have raised me wrong. I'm so messed up. Oh, God. This is not a, a party. I start drinking the last couple of years. I stopped bathing. Because once all the fun ran out of the party, I don't care. I just, I'm, a, I'm an oblivion seeker. Now, this isn't fun. This is pathetic. I got wet pants most of the time. It's pathetic. You put me sober six months and I can't see the reality of my drinking anymore. You know what I start to see? I start to see the good old days. I start to see and imagine that I can get high like I got high when I was 18 years old. Even though in truth that has been a dead horse for a couple years I don't want to look the, at the reality that it's a dead horse because every fiber in my being yearns desperately for that effect. And I convince myself. The bad part about having an, uh, the mind of a chronic alcoholic, I'm selling and I'm buying at the same time. This is not good. This is not good. This is bad. This is very bad. Uh, and I convince myself that, uh, that it's going to be good like it used to. You might have had this experience the last couple of years I drank. The best part of every run I ever went on was usually the hour before it started. <laughs> on my way to the liquor store, this is like Christmas morning on your way to the tree. Only you get there and the tree's burnt down. I mean, it's like... <laughs> And I, I started uh, going to Alcoholics Anonymous as a young kid. I, I think I was 19 or 20. I was in an institution and I was made to go to my first meeting of AA. And I did not. Some people say they come to their first meeting and felt like they were home. I felt like I was being punished just for being here. I, this was bad. I mean, first of all, I'm not even old enough to take a legal drink. And I'm, I'm in 
the people are so old. I felt like I was in God's waiting room. It was like, oh my God. It, I, my friend, my old friend of mine died a few years ago. He had the best, best description of it. He said, and I get this, if there's any musicians in the room, you'll get this. He said, when I, I found, realized I was in AA, he said, I felt like I joined the Salvation Army band. You know, it's like, oh, it's come to this, has it? Oh, my God. This is this Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, my God. Rooms, rooms full of old people that talk about God all the time. Oh, stop it. Oh, it's like, get me out of here. Isn't it, I, was just, I was just talking with a friend of mine. Every year, every year I'd go in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous, and every time I'd come back, you looked a little more reasonable. Isn't that? <laughs> I was being tendered up. I was being tenderized by the disease of alcoholism. So when it says in the beginning of chapter three that most of us have been unwilling to admit we're real alcoholics, I'm that guy. I don't want to. I don't want to have this disease, but I got it. And I finally started to know that I had it. I finally started to, to connect the dots and, and, and from my own experience and realize that I was that guy who, when I took the first one, I couldn't stop. And I think that the, 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 the remnants of the delusion that this time I'm going to control and enjoy it, I think, were eventually smashed. Um, but even, it's, it's odd, you know... Even after several treatment centers, after I've been bludgeoned intellectually into an acceptance that I'm that guy. If I pick up a drink, I got that thing that happens to me. You know, like a friend of mine says, it's like having sex with a gorilla. You ain't done till the gorilla's done. You know what I mean? I start. I can't stop. I can't get that back in the cage. And I get that. And so, so I think that I'm out of the woods now that I know that. See, I, here's a delusion that a lot of guys like me get behind. The delusion that, that knowledge is power. That's the great failure of treatment. It's the great failure of academic approaches to the big book. And, and these nuts and bolts, let's tear every word in the book apart so you get to understand it intellectually. Recovery from alcoholism is not an intellectual process. It's an experiential process. It starts off in step one when it says we, we learned we had to fully concede to our innermost self. This is not in your head. This is in a place where there's no chatter. This is in a place that sometimes we are beaten half to death before the light comes on in here. And I, uh, I think knowledge is power. I became, at one point, in my early 20s, I went to, coming out of a treatment center. I was, I like treatment. Coming out of a treatment center, I, they put me in classes in school and took some stuff, and I became a certified uh, counselor, substance abuse counselor. I was, I'll tell you, I was very good at it, too. Right up to the day I lost the job for being drunk on the job. They don't like that. Uh, but why, why do guys like me do that? Because I'm looking for power. See, but if there's one who has all power, there's no power in the knowledge. If there's one who has all, it's a delusion. But I think knowledge is power. We live in a society that perpetrates that big time, big time. 
as if you could as if you can have a little box in your room that interconnects you to knowledge all over the world and that's almost like God but it's not there's one who has all power that one is God may you find him now and so I, I think that I'm out of the woods now that I know that I, and I really make up my mind the most horrific horrible horrible years of my life were the years where I was relapsing myself to death with full knowledge of my condition I'll tell you something I don't think there's a hell on earth, earth worse than knowing what's going on and being absolutely incapable of changing it and you're killing yourself and you can't stop. And I don't understand what's going on. And, and I, go, I go to Alcoholics Anonymous intermittently. As a matter of fact, it's funny. You know, there, in the years I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic, but how come every time I start drinking, I end up the, the run where in institutions where all the alcoholics are grouped? I mean, I... <laughs> There's a message in that somehow. And I, I, I'm trying to change my life and I can't. And I uh, went to a lot of meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. But the problem is I can't hear you. See, this is so loud. And this is so right that you're, you never get to me. I'm the guy who just sits in, in halfway houses and sits in treatment centers and sits in AA meetings and when people in AA share I just mentally sit there and pick them apart you know I'll just sit there and look at speakers and go is that a toupee? (laughs) anything just you know oh he's a sunbeam for Jesus is he? Hmm. just anything to discount you because I, that's the way I defend my... See, my disease has survival mechanisms. It does not want to get better. And it defends itself against change. Because it wants, it wants to be in the catbird seat. I don't know. I'm in the bondage of self. Or as the book equates it to ego when it says self-centered, long dash, or egocentric as people like to call it nowadays... I don't know that this, whatever you want, arose by any other name, that this thing's got me. And it's killing me. I had a psychiatrist, a great man in, in Pittsburgh. He's still, I think he's 90-some years old. He's still working in the field of alcoholism. He's a, a rabbi and a, and a psychiatrist, Dr. Abe Torsky. If you, some of you guys may have heard him. A remarkable man. He, he nailed me in one of the treatment centers I was in back there. And he, 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 he said, he said, the reason guys like you never get any better is you're so ego-dominant that you have an inability to listen to anybody in order to hear anything new. You can only listen to see how you are already right. And man, that nailed me because I'm that guy. I'm the guy that if you agree with me, you're brilliant, everybody else is stupid. And the problem is, the only people that agree with me are probably not going to be sober next week, right? Because, I've, because we're on the same page and it's not a good page. Uh, see, I fit the old adage, you can always tell an alcoholic, you just can't tell them much. I got this ego that just... Just knocks it all away. Tears you down. I don't understand 
because I don't have the vision. I'm not awake at that point in my life to, to see that really, truthfully, I feel horrible about myself. And so it's a defense mechanism. I'm tearing you down, trying to level the playing field as if if I could find enough wrong with you, maybe I won't be so pathetic here. And, and I, heard, I heard alcoholism described one time as, as, as that, we are, that we are egomaniacs with inferiority complexes. And if you don't know what that means, it's not so much you're a piece of whale crap, you're a very special piece of whale crap. You're, you're the piece of whale crap that can see how inferior the other pieces of whale crap are. I heard another guy say, we're the only people on earth that can lay in the gutter and look down on society. I mean, that's so true. I, I remember, oh God, I remember... One of the last conversations I had with my mother on the phone, I was in, uh, she was on the other side of the state, and I was in, in a treatment center. It was the last time she took, one of the last times she took my call. And she had to tell me about the guys I went to high school with and how, how successful they are, how well they're doing. You know, just, and I'm pathetic. I'm a, I'm a homeless guy living in a, off the streets in a place, you know. And she had to tell me the one guy's is a doctor. The other guy's got an insurance company. The other guy's building a house. And, oh, they're all doing so great. Right, not too long after, I'm sitting in the park and I'm drinking wine. And I'm thinking about that conversation. Maybe I made me feel bad. I'm thinking about those people. Yeah. I'm living outdoors. I wasn't really homeless. I was an urban outdoorsman. <laughs> Well, if you, I'm Drama Road, on the road, Jack Kerouac. I mean, you know. I mean, uh, and uh, I remember sitting and thinking about those guys I went to high school with. Yeah, yeah. I remember thinking, ah, they got big lives. Yeah, yeah, they got all that. Yeah, but they couldn't take it living like this. <laughs> that I could feel, make myself superior to them. Isn't that pathetic? That's pathetic. And, but that's what guys like me do. That's what this ego I have does. And uh, it's awful. I'll tell you, I, one thing. I, uh, here, this, if you relate to this, you're in trouble. I, I, uh, I, I used to end up in emergency rooms frequently because I'd hurt myself. You know? I'd maybe in a rage, drunken rage put my hand through a window or, or fall down and hit. I ended up in this emergency room and they got to stitch me up, give me some stitches and they've x-rayed me. And so I've been in there about two hours, I guess, and it's kind of sobered up while I'm in there. So I'm not as drunk as I was when I brought in. And I'm waiting for the results from these x-rays. I'm sitting in this waiting room and they have a rack of medical pamphlets. Diabetes, heart disease, etc., etc. And there's this one pamphlet that gets my attention. It says, seven warning signs of cancer. And I grab that pamphlet and I start looking through it. And one of the warning signs is unexplained continued bleeding. And I remember reading that thinking, oh my God. I was bleeding. I throw up blood sometimes in the morning when I get to dry heaves. In fact, at times I'm bleeding out both ends. I thought, oh my God, I got cancer. And then I thought, oh, wait a Oh, oh, oh. It's metastasized to my brain. That's why I do the weird things I do. That's why I can't remember. That's why I get so depressed and excited and angst up. 
oh my God, I got a tumor pressing on my brain. It, I tell you, it made so much sense. It explained volumes of my life. And I, I had this fantasy for a long time uh, that I was, uh, one day they're going to find out. They're going to take me to a cancer ward. They're going to have to notify my mother and father who had thought I was a bum. And they're going to instantly realize how wrong they'd been about me. They're going to come rushing to the hospital to beg my forgiveness. All, all my ex-girlfriends are going to be notified. And they're going to come I properly ashamed of themselves to the hospital. And if they're properly ashamed of themselves, I may forgive them. I may not. I don't know. And I just love that fantasy. And I ended up in a treatment center. This is right not too long before I got sober. And I ended up in this treatment center and I, this doctor, I'm talking to this doctor, I said, Doc, I, I have a brain tumor. And he says, is that verified? I said, yes, it was. Well, it was verified by the smartest guy I know. Uh, and so he, they give me a whole battery of tests. And he comes back to me later and he says, you don't have any cancer at all. You have, you have a, an ulcer and a hemorrhoid. <laughs> now, this is the bizarre part. When he said that, it was like I was disappointed. I wanted a second opinion. Right? My ego, my ego would rather have me dead with a brain tumor and have everybody realize how wrong they'd been, and I'm right, than to be free of cancer. Isn't that, that's kind of pathetic, isn't it, really? I mean, if you identify with that on any level, you do not have a high mental health quotient. And so... I'm in the I'm in the I'm hostage. I'm in the bondage of this thing, and I don't know it. And I uh, I go on on what was to be my last run, and that doctor that gave me that physical said something to me. It stuck with me. I was a young kid. I was in my twenties. He said, "You know, kid, if you keep drinking, it's going to kill you. But you're young enough. You bounce back physically enough. It may take may take five more years." And on my last run, I came to in a park, and I got the shakes again. And I'm pathetic. And I'm so full of self-pity. I'm de so depressed when I drink. Now, there is no more relief in the bag and the bottle for me. And I can't get any ease and comfort anywhere. Uh, there's a, a guy in AA talks about getting to a place where there's no friendly direction. Not only with people and society and life, but there's not even any friendly direction in the bottle. I mean, it is turned on me, and I can't turn it back, and not from a lack of trying. I have the place that they talk about in the book, we get to a place where we can't imagine life with it, and we can't imagine life without it. The book refers to it as the jumping off place. It says, oddly enough, what would happen, what was happening for me. It says, we'll wish for the end. And I made up, a, I made up my mind to kill myself. Because I remember thinking about the doctor saying five more years. I remember I felt so pathetic. I thought to myself, five more years of in and out of these places. Five. I thought, no, sir, I, I, I'm not doing five more days of this. And I made the decision to kill myself. And oddly enough, there was a relief in the decision. It was like some kind of closure on some horror part of my life. And I went to a bridge. Uh, 
with the intention of taking my life and, and felt I was very glad to do it. And something gripped me, a terror gripped me. And it was not the fear of dying. I'm not afraid of dying. I, I think most, I don't think, very few alcoholics are, if you can't threaten us with death, <laughs> keep drinking, it's going to kill you. Yeah, by Tuesday, come on, come on. I mean, you know, I mean, I, well, we try to drink ourselves to death. Most of us try to commit, think, and start thinking about often ourselves because to drink yourself to death takes a long time. It's like being kicked to death by rabbits. It just goes on and on and on. And, it, and it's, it's brutal. By the time it kills you, everyone you've ever loved hates you. So I'm on this, and it's not the fear of death that grips me. Here's what grips me. And it terrorized me. I'm looking down on these railroad tracks, maybe, I don't know, maybe 100 feet below. And all of a sudden I started thinking, what if this isn't high enough? What, what if I screw this up like I've screwed up everything else in my life and I fail here too? And instead of dying, I'll end up paralyzed from the neck down, laying in sober, can't even get a drink, laying in a charity hospital for 50 years, listening to my head tell me what a worthless piece of crap I am, as members of Alcoholics Anonymous parade their newcomers through the room, and I get to hear them say, well, this is what happens to you when you don't find God in, in our beautiful 12 steps. Shoot me. Put me out of my misery. Stop it. Now that terrified me. And I, when I stood on that bridge and I broke down and I started sobbing. And you know something? I, I, I suspect that if you would have come up to me at that point and you would have said, my God, Bob, you're trying to kill yourself. Why don't you do AA? Here's, uh, here's, the, here's some sad news. I think legitimately I would have told you I did AA. And I never did. I went to probably 150 to 200 meetings. And I tried not to drink. But I never did AA. And the sad part is I don't know that I didn't do AA. And I think when it comes to alcoholism, I think some of us die of ignorance as much as we do from defiance. Probably more of us die of ignorance than from defiance. And I didn't know there was more here. There is more here. If you're, if you're one of those guys like I was that's, that's several months and you go back out again and you've been going to meetings and you've been sharing your feelings and, and you've been trying not to drink and it's failing you and it's starting to terrify you, I want you to know there's more here. I went to a, a party one time at a fraternity house on a college campus. And I went into this party. It was supposed to be a good party. I went to the party. To me, it was a nothing party. I was about ready to leave. There's a keg of beer in the living room. They had some music on the stereo. About 15, 20 boring people sitting around drinking cups of beer. Well, that's not enough for me. I've got to go get some rum or something or tequila or something. I've got to, I've got to get a little more than this. And I'm just about ready to leave. And I saw... I saw a guy coming down the hall from some room in the back of the house. Oh, he looked a little more lit up than these other people did. And I thought, well, what the, what's back there? Uh, 
started wandering down that road. First door I came to, I went in there. There's people in there doing shots of tequila. I, I'm in. Here, I'm in. I go down the hall a little further after I burnt that room out, went down the hall a little further. And they're, they're smoking something, snorting something, and doing beer bombs. I'm in. I went down the room a little, a little further. There's a bunch of people in there. I don't know what they're doing, but they're naked, and I'm going to stay for a while. <laughs> but the point, the point is... I don't turn it down. I don't go in there and go, oh, no, I don't, no, no, thank you. I went for it all. And if you're new here and you've been struggling or maybe you're relapsing, I'm telling you, why don't you do that here? Go for it all here. Go for it all here. There's more here than you can imagine. But you won't find it sitting in a discussion meeting talking about your feelings. You'll find it with a good sponsor. You'll find it in the service structure. You'll find it in actions that are altruistic by nature. You'll find it in cleaning up the wreckage of your past. And you'll find it in the joy of helping others. But you won't find it sitting around talking about you. And I encourage you to, to buy this whole package. The beginning of chapter 5 talks about guys like me who relapsed for for over six years until I almost took my own life. And it's, it's talking about the group of people that I was in. It says those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely, like that's more than half, completely <laughs> give themselves to this simple program. I was part of that group for, for six years and I don't know it. And you couldn't tell me nothing because I'm so full of myself. I don't take any direction unless I agree with it. Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> unless I agree with it, I'd be better off using Charles Manson for a spiritual advisor than my head. I mean... And I, uh, I came off that drunk and I was in a hospital in Las Vegas to detox him. I never imagined that I met them. You meet the cream of the crop in there. No, really, you do. You, met, you meet the people that have big lives and they give time out of their lives to go into these skid row places, these down and out places. And they go in week after week after week and very few results. But they don't care. They just hope one day to catch a guy like me. And they did. The Buddhists say when the student's ready, the teachers appear. I met my first sponsor, a man I've come to love. He's been like a dad to me for all these years. I'm going over, taking him to, uh, he wants, he's very old now, and he's sober a long time, 49 years. I'm taking him to, uh, to Hawaii with me next two in a week and a half because he wants to go there before, the, before he goes home. And, uh, it's my privilege to do that. And I met him. And I said something to him that was out of character. If I had been, if I would have felt more secure within myself, I'd have never said. I said to him, if you'll sponsor me, I'll do everything you ask me to do. And you know something? They have stuff they want you to do. They got like lists of stuff. I thought it was a rhetorical statement. It's not a rhetorical statement. Oh no, they're very serious about this stuff. 
Oh, and, and I fell into the hands of a bunch of people, service maniacs. I mean, they just, they wanted me involved in everything in Alcoholics Anonymous. They, they, I got railroaded into being a secretary of a group. I wasn't even much more than two months sober. I said, you're supposed to have six. And they said, well, we're changing it for you. <laughs> I was scared. I, th- I was afraid I was going to steal their money. I didn't, but I was afraid. I think that's the beginning of rigorous honesty. It's not that I, it's, it's that when I was the most dishonest in my life, I never even questioned it. The fact that I'm questioning my ability to not, st- that I was the beginning of honesty with me. That I knew I could lie to you if I was scared. I knew I could steal from you if I was financially insecure enough. And it was the beginning of me getting honest. And I, this, these people were nuts. They just they kept wanting me to go on 12-step work. They wanted me to sign up for a new meeting in the state penitentiary that was just starting in Gene, Gene Nevada. They wanted me to go back into the detox. They wanted me to get on the 12-step list. They wanted me to go to the EOB, which was another treatment center, and Samaritan House, all this service, or help others, help others. Help. I said to this guy, I said, for, well, for God's sakes, because I had a lot of therapy. I said, for God's sakes, don't you think I should work on myself for a while? <laughs> and he rears back and he says, Work on you? You've done quite enough of that. He said, stop it. I said that I thought, I guess I have done quite enough of that. Oh my God, if I could have been fixed, I'd have been fixed by now. I mean, I tried everything. I was hypnotized, regressed back in my childhood. I did primal screaming. I did gestalt therapy. I was in therapy with Albert Ellis up in New York and then rational motive therapy. I mean... If anything came up on the... My mother worked for mental health, so if anything came up on the radar that might help Bob, I'm signing up. (laughs) You don't have to convince me no human power. I tried all the medications. I tried all the therapy. I tried everything that was on the radar. No human power. I get that. I get that the only way a guy like me could get it. I left no stone unturned. And so I started doing service in Alcoholics Anonymous. I got a home group. I got the sponsor. I start calling him up. I, I have a hard, you know, the funny thing when you when I first got sober, I was I think I was surrendered by the bottle, and then something, then my ego started to return, and the problem is, I don't know it's returning, and it's returning smarter, and cleverer. <laughs> And now it knows parts of the book. And now it knows the traditions. And now, oh, it's, and it's coming back strong. I, I got into general service. I studied the traditions. What the tradition, workshops, concept. Did a, a, a service manual study group. I chaired for, with four people that looked like they were sentenced there for about, about a year. I did all that stuff. Why? So I could be a better, more integrated servant? No. So I could go to meetings and see how you were doing it wrong. I learned the big book so I could lord it over you. I didn't even know I was doing that. I'd go, I remember just, oh, if, if I could go to, if I went to a meeting and saw somebody breaking a tradition, it was like Christmas. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, that's very pathetic. And this is not standing up for something I love, which I I will do that today. This is all about me. And my ego started to return, and I don't know what's going on, and I'm just 
And I, I found in Alcoholics Anonymous that uh, to stay here, I have to somehow be right-sized. And you can take it standing up or you can take it kneeling down, but you're going to take it one way or the other. And I've had some brutal surrenders and I've had some that were more graceful. But this ego just keeps coming back. I think that I am like the back of a toilet. You can flush it and it empties out and I just start filling up with me again. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, I don't mean to, but it's just like it's, it's it, to have chronic alcoholism. To have chronic alcoholism means that I have a chronic spiritual malady that I will spend the rest of my life trying to empty me out of me. Why? Because that's the only way I seem to get connected to God. I, I have often wondered if, if this, this, might, this spiritual malady, this thing called alcoholism, may not be God's greatest blessing. It keeps me on a firing line. You know, I, I went to therapists for years and they used, to, they used to try to talk me out of something I knew in the pit of my stomach. I always had these feelings of inadequacy. I always had this sense that I was not enough. And they tried to talk me out of it. Like, oh, that's sad. you're really enough. You're, you're one of God's kids. You're, complete. you're perfect as is and all this other stuff. I'll tell you something. I think the greatest thing I have is my, the honest, genuine knowledge that I'm incomplete, that I'm not enough. Because it keeps me striving here towards you and towards God and towards service and towards everything we do here. Let me tell you something. If I could do what those therapists suggested and, and, and embrace my completeness, why would I continue to do what we do here? I just go and be complete. I just go and be whole. It is the incompleteness that keeps me yearning. Yearning for God, for more service. People, a guy asked me not too long ago, how many people do you sponsor? Not enough because I'm still self-centered. I don't know. I've all, I have never, and I, 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 I do a fair amount in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't want to give you my, I don't want to get into a bragging thing about what I do, but I do a fair amount here. And honest to God, I've never, ever felt like it was enough. And I used to think that was a bad thing. I don't think that's a bad thing anymore. I think that's a good thing. I think it's the best thing I have going for me. I don't feel like I do enough here. So I keep showing up and I keep looking for opportunities to help. I miss more than I catch because I'm self-centered. There, there's a, the thing I'm, a question I'm supposed to ask myself at night in, in the 11th step self-examination when you retire at night. The question that throws me was I kind and loving towards all. All. <laughs> For God's sakes. I mean, there's people that don't deserve kind and loving, you know? I mean, I'm kind of loving to the ones that are kind and loving to me. The book says all. Help God's kids for fun and for free without prejudice or opinion. 
what an order. And I, every day I ask myself that question and most, not all days, but most days I'll catch something. I'll catch the, the guy that shared something in the meeting. I didn't, I didn't like. I didn't think I liked the way he shared. <laughs> so I wasn't, I wasn't actually rude to him, but I wasn't kind and loving at all. And I missed it. Because if I could have gotten out of myself enough to put myself in his shoes, I didn't know why he shared what he shared. Just like I share stuff that's off the wall sometimes because I'm I got self-centered fear or I'm having a bad day or I'm off track. And instead, I just I gave the guy the cold shoulder instead of seeing that that was an opportunity. That was an opportunity to help one of God's kids and I missed it. I miss a lot. I travel a lot and I, I'm on planes a lot and I'll tell you, I, I've, start, I've started to, matter of fact, Tom said something a few, five, six years ago, maybe longer, I don't know, but he's got, he got me started doing this and I start watching in airports because in airports, people are outside their comfort zone. They get very afraid. They don't know they're afraid and they act badly. And they'll give, they'll give the ticket people a hard time. Uh, sometimes the ticket agents, after they've been given a hard time by ten people, give the next person a hard time. And, and, and it's all the same stuff that drives me self-centered fear and if you're awake you see it you see past the thing that's annoying you you see what's really going on with those people I've had experiences where I'll just go up to uh, I'll see some guy flying off the handle with some ticket agent and I'll just say I'll, I'll be two people behind in line and I'll just I'll say you know I want you to know I really respect how you handled that and, and I remember I said this to this woman I said, you know, sometimes when people travel, they get afraid. And you know how we get when we're afraid. And it was like a veil lift. And she went, oh, yeah, yeah. She forgot because she'd been, her defense mechanism, she'd been annoyed by the guy. She forgot the truth. See that he is her, just as I am you. Einstein said one time, the great illusion is that there's more than one of us here. You do service in Alcoholics Anonymous, you listen to fifth steps. Oh, man. I don't know how many fifth steps it takes to get. It's the same person. I mean, we could. If, you're, if you haven't written your fourth step, we can give you the first ten names. Mother, father, brother, sister. I mean, we can give you first ten names. We can give you first ten names. And, and every, I, I listen to a lot of fifth steps. A lot of them, I, I got a guy working on one a fourth right now. I know it's in the next week or so. I'm going to be listening to another fifth step. And uh, it's always the same. It's the same empty, vacant, scared, inadequate, pathetic egomaniac trying to gratify himself and make himself better. And he steps on the toes of everybody around him in the process. It's always the same. It never changes. It's the same guy. Every time I listen to a fifth step, I'm hoping something new, something exciting. Chunky peanut butter and a vibrating lawn rake. Something, something <laughs> interesting. But it's never like that. It's just the same. It's the same. We, we are mundane in our ordinariness. Isn't it funny how, how you, you, you start waking up that, that we're the same? And what a delusion. We came in here. We all came in here with the same delusion. We're unique. You, you know that, that feeling you get like, oh, I know. 
You say you understand me, but nobody really understands me. And we're, it's like we all should line up and say that at the same time. It should be our, we should close meetings with that. We know you say you understand it, but nobody really understands. We're pathetically alike. I mean, it's... In Alcoholics Anonymous, through service and helping others, is you've, you've, uh, you've brought me back to me, and you brought me to you, and you brought me to God. And when I stood on that bridge in 1978... It didn't feel like I was going to kill myself like I was dying of alcoholism. It felt like I was dying of loneliness. Because I don't fit anywhere drunk and I don't fit anywhere sober and I don't know why. And everything I've tried has failed. And I came to you and you asked me to take some actions I didn't believe would work. And they changed my life. And you've restored me to a sense of community. I'm not the guy that's dying of loneliness. I got a lot of people in my life I really care about. There's quite a few in this room. People I know pretty well, and I really like you, which makes my taste questionable. <laughs> and there's people in Alcoholics Anonymous that know everything about me, that know everything. There's, I, I got a couple guys that I have no secrets from, and they love me. As is. I never imagined that. I always thought I had to be something I wasn't. I never, I was never okay for me, so how could I ever be okay for you? And to my, to my delight is that I am okay for me. I ain't perfect. But there's nobody I'd rather be than me. With all my flaws, all my self-centeredness, all my fear, everything that ever has been part of me, there's nobody on earth I'd rather be than me. And that's pretty good. And there's nobody I'd rather be with than you. Thank you for my life.